right, welcome back to the Gospel of John. If you're new with us, we've been in the Gospel of John since February, taking a couple of breaks, but for the most part, we are walking through this verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we are in chapter 10. So grab your Bibles, your app, your tablet, turn to John 10. We're going to look at verses 19 through 42 today. If you've come without a Bible, then down the center column of seats, there are a couple Bibles stacked on top of each other. You're welcome to grab one of those. Just tell the person on the end of the aisle to pass you one. It's going to be around 590 or so. And then uh, as you're using that, if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take that with you as our gift to you. Um, can I be honest? All right, check it out. This is one of the things about preaching through a book of the Bible, and that really is our staple here. Uh, it's, it, it's called expositional preaching. You're... you're expositing, bringing out those things that are in the text that you're given. And I wanted so bad to skip over this and go to chapter 11. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. And it's not that this is not a good passage. It's, it's God's word to us. Um, just, you know, sometimes you just want to preach what you want to preach and not what the Bible says. And so this is one of those weeks. So uh, y'all need to pray that the Holy Spirit helps me today. All right. So we're going to read this out loud together. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 19 through 42. Here we go. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but that for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You're gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first and there he remained, and many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many, in, many believed in him there. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we honor you today with our worship as we gather as your church. We honor you with our time. Uh, we pray that as we've sung songs to you, that you would... Sing over us even now with songs of deliverance. I pray that you would bring your word to life in the hearts of men and women in this room. Lord, that, um, that there would be something unexpected, challenging, encouraging in your text that, uh, that might come alive in us and that we might see ourselves in light of the good news of a God who's come to the earth. The scripture says that you, you consecrated Jesus, 
you sent him to be amongst us. And, and what did you do that for? For nothing less to, than to save us, to make us like him. And so, God, we pray that in these few short minutes that we spend together, that uh, your word would not return void, that you would do all that you have intended to accomplish by your word in the hearts of your people. You're our shepherd. We're, we're mere sheep. Lead us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So I spent, I've spent, uh, most of y'all know, I've spent a little time in the Army, uh, retired in 2008. And uh, in all those years of Army service, I spent four and a half years of my Army service in Iraq. It's four and a half years. I left in, I think it was 2003. David was two, was not talking. I came back. I mean, he he hadn't stopped talking since. Um, I miss Zoe's birth, cesarean birth. Now, it was just, you know, there's some there's some moments in there that I don't want to remember. But of all the enduring memories that I have of my time deployed as a soldier, it, it uh, one of the one of the enduring memories that I have is on, being on a remote site on the border of Saudi Arabia and Iraq. And it was I was a young lieutenant, barely a first lieutenant. And I don't know why my 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 FDO, my fire direction center section was sent to do this, but we were like a, a Ford observation post to make sure the Iraqis weren't doing whatever they were supposed to be doing. All right. So um, we were around nothing on a little bitty knoll, like a hilltop. And literally there was nothing around us except for a few camels. Saw my first real live camel, touched it. They actually do have humps. And uh, the... The enduring memory, however, is of a shepherd with sheep. All over this desert pasture land were um, Bedouin shepherds who, just as scripture alludes us to, um, had staffs and they would walk and wherever they walked, their sheep would follow. They would talk and the sheep would, you know, they would respond as if, the shepherd was communicating with them. I saw this up close and personal. And, and, you know, I was a Christian then, but what it did for me was it brought the Bible alive. It's like, you know, these stories that I've, that I've read in John and, and the like, that, I mean, Jesus wasn't just making this stuff up. These were real life pictures that the people on earth at, during his time had lived through. And he was giving them um, just uh, vivid imagery of stuff that they should have already been familiar with and and experienced themselves. And that really is what John is doing. Uh, the evangelist John um, and using Jesus words is doing in John chapter 10. He's Jesus is telling the story of a shepherd who walks by a, a sheep pen. He calls his sheep out, calls them by name and they and they follow him. And he's not making this up. I mean, this this is how life was lived at the time. But he's also not telling the story of a shepherd with his sheep in isolation. He's talking about the story of a shepherd and his sheep because of what happened earlier in, in the chapter. Um, he, he presents the story of of him walking by and healing a blind man. And when you think about someone who's been born blind and has had that that um, that kind of life, you know, for his existence. And then all of a sudden something happens to him that he's able to see. You think that not only his life would change, but those around him, uh, they would celebrate in that. And really they, their life would change as well. But none of that happens. In fact, the man gets a very negative reaction. He gets a negative reaction from his neighbors. The neighbors are like, well, are you sure you're that guy? I mean, we've never seen anybody do this before. I mean, I mean, I, I, we've never seen a man who's who was blind and his eyes were open. His family gave him a negative reaction. His parents were fearful of the authorities. And so they basically said, well, we know he's our son and we know he couldn't see. But I mean, you ask him if he's I don't know. We don't know what happened. And probably the most negative reaction came from the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the chief priests, um, who should have known the works of God and should have recognized this as a work of God. But instead, all they can focus on is that a man named Jesus, who they did not like, actually healed a man on the Sabbath, which no religious person would have done. And so in John 10, Jesus uses the parable of a shepherd and a sheep really to reveal the, 
the heart of God towards his people. Uh, he reveals all of God's strategy for what he's doing in the world. And what he's doing in, cha- in uh, chapter 10, verse 19 through 40, uh, uh, 42, the end of this chapter, is continuing the story that we started last week. So that's where we're going we're gonna to dive into the text at chapter uh, verse 19. Here we go. There again was a division amongst the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and it's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? What this, these uh, three verses here are alluding to is there, there's a division amongst us. I mean, there's, there's something that divides humanity um, all across the world, every nation, every culture, in, in two. It's splitting people left and right. And if you think about it, just the idea of division, there's a lot in our world that naturally divides us. First, you have uh, ethnicity and race. It, it divides us, doesn't it? Uh, you have uh, socioeconomic status. You have those who have it and those who don't. You have gender. Uh, definitely in our current day, there, there's the topic of gender that's dividing us. What, what should a man do? What should a, a woman do? There's intelligence level. And I don't know if y'all knew this. But this is a test. Y'all divide it right down the congregation. There's a, there's a side that's intelligent and there's a side that's not. I'm not going to tell you which one it is. Mm. Mm. If you're a sports fanatic, then I come from ACC country. You know, my, my dad worked at Carolina. My mom worked at Duke, and so, like, I mean, I got a divided family. My wife went to NC State. I mean, who likes NC State? Come on. <laughs> so you got Duke versus Carolina basketball. Uh, Redskins, I, I'm, I'm new to the D.C. area, like most of y'all, uh, but I, who are the, who is, who's the, the arch rival of the, of the Redskins? Yeah, uh, Giants or Cowboys, you take your pick. Let's see if we can beat either one of those this year. And then... The, the greatest rivalry of them all. Shh. Army versus Navy. <laughs> Army versus Navy. And, and you all missed your cue because that was the time for all the Army people in the room to go, be Navy! Right? No, no offense, uh, Navy guys. Scott and Tim. Mark. Yeah. So, you know, here's the thing. We treat all these rivalries as real dividing factors, but, but they're not. They're all superficial. Um, they can be overcome with a little bit of grace and, and kindness, right? Uh, but there is one dividing factor that runs through time and space and through every culture that has ever existed. And that division is illustrated in this text. Um, it's the division that Jesus exposed as he walked through, through planet Earth. And this is how he... Um, explains it in a different text. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. He says, don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And he's like, actually, I, I don't think Jesus knew that. He didn't set that in order. That's just natural. <laughs> and, a person's en- and a person's enemies will be those of his own, own, own household. And so this is the, the interesting dynamic with, with Jesus. Everywhere he went, a, a division arises. Jesus is stirring up division, and he's doing it because of his words. His, his words had this polarizing effect with all those that, that he interacted with. Um, specifically, as we look at what's gone on in, in John 10, uh, to the unbelieving world, those that weren't truly following them, Jesus teaching about sacrificial love, a good shepherd that would lay his life down for his sheep. I mean, that just seemed ludicrous to those who were who were listening on, who didn't have it in their hearts to to follow him. And so in this text, uh, we hear these words. I mean, this dude has a demon and he's insane. And and so I mean, for those of you that have been reading the Bible for a little bit, I mean, that that sounds insane to us because when you you see what's portrayed about Jesus, the good things that he did, the miracles, the great words, the kindness that he uh, exuded as he walked the earth, that seems insane that someone would call him insane and and to be uh, possessed by a demon. Yet somehow some thought he was mad. And then there were others that thought his teaching was right on and they understood why he was doing all those miracles and what it was leading to. Um, why do we have this divide? 
Uh, this, is, this is the point of the divide. The true division is over Jesus and his gospel. The, the division of people on planet Earth is over Jesus and his gospel. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 2.16 like this, that the gospel is to one person the fragrance of death to death, but to other people it's the fragrance of life to, to life, life to life. The world is divided into those who reject Jesus' gospel as madness and those who receive it as the aroma of life. I'll explain that as we go on. This, this text really has two points for us. Two things that Jesus is bringing out that I think are are pertinent for us to know. The first is not all sheep belong to Jesus. Those are hard words. Not all sheep belong to Jesus. And the second is Jesus and the Father are one. So we'll see that as we go along. Uh, Verse 22. At the time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so... uh, Chapter 21 is uh, in the fall, and then the text fast forwards three, three months to a winter time frame. How do we know? Because uh, John the Evangelist is talking about the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication wasn't one of those Old Testament feasts that God in the law told Israel to, to observe. The Feast of Dedication is actually present-day Hanukkah. In 164 B.C., the Jews gained victory by overthrowing uh, a, a Seleucid king uh, who was king over the Syrians um, called Antiochus Epiphanes. He, was, uh, he wasn't an evil ruler, but his, his claim to fame is he was Hellenizing all the, the areas that they, they overthrew. Hell, I wasn't cussing. He was... He was, he was um, changing everything, uh, dominating everything, and making it all Greek. And as the, the Syrians dominated the, the Jews and the Jewish lands, this is what they brought in. They brought the Greek culture into the, the, the Jewish culture. And, the, uh, and, and Antiochus Epiphanes wanted the Greek culture to dominate. So much so that this is what he did. He took pagan idols and put them in the, the temple, the temple that the Jews had dedicated to, to their god. And so obviously this was the, the worst thing that a Jew could ever experience, that their God and their worship was being desecrated. That holy thing being um, uh, tamed by, uh, by pagan idols. And so 164 B.C., um, a guy named Judas Maccabeus, uh, this is the intertestamental time, that time between when the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins. Uh, the Maccabees were a famous uh, priestly family in the line of Aaron, and Judas Maccabeus rose up. Uh, he went out into the wilderness. He got a whole bunch of his friends, and they went and attacked. It's called the Maccabean Revolt, and the Jews gained victory over uh, over that that Greek culture. They restored their worship in the temple, and um, the Feast of Dedication was their celebration of that. It's present day Hanukkah. The Jews still celebrate it today. Verse twenty four. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly Uh, what's going on in verse 24 behind these English words. The Greek text really is. I mean, they're mobbing Jesus. It it reminds me that I mean, they're pressing in on him, almost like ranger school students in in a mountain phase where it's really cold and like like where, where you need some body heat. They're pressing in on Jesus. They're not pressing in because it's winter or they're cold. They're pressing in because they want Jesus to give them the final verdict. All right, Jesus, we've heard all this stuff from you. We've seen you do a little bit. We've heard the rumors. We want to know if you're the Christ. Tell us very plainly. They, they obviously still didn't know, apparently, beyond all that Jesus had done, whether he was uh, who he was saying he was and whether all the rumors were true. Jesus responds in verse 25. I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. And so Jesus wasn't trying to be evasive. He basically says, you know what? I've told you plainly. You should have heard it plainly. Uh, And here's my commentary. I don't want to say Jesus is lying because obviously Jesus is God. He's not lying. But actually, he had not told them with plain words that he was the Messiah. Actually, he shied away from that. But in private, there were several disciples that Jesus had encountered that he had 
very openly said, this is, this is who I am. If you think back to John chapter 4, Jesus encountered a woman of Samaria, a woman at the well, a woman in sin. And in the, at the end of the conversation, she says, when the Messiah comes, I know he's going to lead us in the truth. And he looks at her, probably stares in her eyes and says, hey, woman, I'm him. You're looking at him. Later in John chapter 6, the, uh, Jesus has said some, some very hard words to thousands of people that are following him. He tells them that if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, yuck, yuck, I'm leaving. You're, something's wrong with you. And only a few, a handful of disciples are left, the 12 that he called out. And, and Jesus looks at them and says, hey, you want to leave too? And Peter stands up and says, Lord, you're the Holy One of God. Uh, where else are we to go? Um, there's only a couple of disciples, a few disciples that Jesus actually revealed his Messiahship to. And here's why. It's because the Jews had uh, the wrong perspective of what the Messiah was going to be like. They wanted the warrior. They wanted the king who was going to, like Judas Maccabeus, was going to overthrow anybody that invaded their land and caused them to, to follow anybody but Jewish, Jewish leaders in a Jewish land. They wanted their Messiah to come like the gladiator, Russell Crowe with his skirt on, and, and overthrow the Romans. And Jesus came in the likes of the, uh, what Isaiah the prophet says was the suffering servant. I- Isaiah says that uh, the one that comes that's going to be your Messiah, he's going to suffer and die for the sins of the people. And so Jesus was very guarded about his use of the title Messiah. And we'll see that particularly as he gets closer to uh, the cross. Verse 26. But you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And so Jesus said, I've been telling you who I am all this time and you simply haven't believed. And what he's saying, the words behind his words are, okay, so maybe I haven't said it out to some of you, because if I said it, you couldn't handle it. But here's what I've shown you. I've shown you my works. And whenever Jesus is talking about his works, he's simply pointing to his miracles. Those, those, um, those things that he did that no one else in, in a humanly way could make happen, turning water into wine, uh, healing a man by speaking a word who's, a, you know, a state away or walking by a person who's been invalid for 38 years and telling him to get up. And the man just gets up and starts walking around. Those are the things that Jesus is pointing to when he says, if you don't believe me, at least believe my works. But then in, in, in verse 26, Jesus drops a bomb. And this is a bomb for the people of the first century, but it's also a bomb for us, even if you think you know Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, my sheep hear my voice. And if you uh, and if you don't believe me, it's because you're not one of my sheep. These are these are hard words. I don't know how you receive them. They're significant words in this text. And it, I mean, they're significant words really for all of the Bible in terms of who is God calling to himself? Um, that begs the question. I mean, who are if, if Jesus is saying um, they haven't believed and therefore they're not his sheep, who are Jesus sheep? What, what do they look like? And I think he tells us in verse 27, in verse 27, he says his sheep hear his voice. He says his sheep, uh, he knows them. He knows his sheep. And thirdly, he says they follow them. And I think what Jesus is presenting us, particularly in verse 27, but really in all of uh, these, this last dialogue in, in John is that he's present, presenting us a theology of salvation. Now, I want you all to fasten your seatbelts. All right. So I got to give you a little bit of theology. There's a lot of disguise within the last part of chapter 10 is, is theology. It's, it's Jesus telling us who God is. Theology really is, is man coming to a knowledge of who God is. And Jesus is helping us draw this out. And so there's three things I think that um, that we need to know in regards to our own salvation. What is what, what does God do to to save us? What does it actually mean? And the first thing is uh, is a point that I'll take uh, from something that John said earlier. John uh, chapter six, verse sixty five. He says, uh, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted, uh, granted him by the father. I don't know how you read that verse, but basically that verse is telling you is um you have no access to God unless God first helps you have access to himself. 
It's saying that God calls certain people to himself and he gives them the ability to, to come to him because in and of yourself, you have no ability. So the, the, the first thing in the theology of the theology of salvation is it, it talks about man's spiritual inability. Uh, there are some people that think that when they when they decide to go to church for the first time, when they're when they're opening their Bible, that anything they do that leans toward God and spiritual things, that it's them making those those decisions on their own because they've decided, you know what, I'm just going to follow God today. What Jesus is telling us in this text, but, but primarily in John six sixty five, is that whenever you incline yourself toward God, God is pulling you to himself first. Jesus also says, um, no one comes to God unless the Holy Spirit first draws them. Why is that? Because you're dead. You're like you're like dead men walking. You're, you're you know, not dead in the sense that you don't have blood flowing through you. You're spiritually dead. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Man's problem because of sin is he's spiritually dead and beyond the point of being able to do anything for his own salvation. And honestly, that's what we all want to do. We want to be able to save ourselves. We want to be able to... Uh, to know that the good that we've achieved in this life, we've earned it. And that, that is the cause of some of the confusion in the church. There's some people that believe that they can earn everything they deserve in life just by working hard, okay, to include their salvation. I'm going to give to a charity. I'm going to give to church. I'm going to do good deeds. I'm going to be kind to people. And that's going to get me to where I need to go. And in, in regards to spiritual things in God, it's going to get me to heaven. We just baptized seven people, I think five people, like two weeks ago. There's some, uh, there's a few people that would read the Bible and say, um, you know what? I'm just going to get baptized. I'm going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to have a, a preacher, a pastor dunk me in the water. And when I come up out of the water, I'm going to be brand new. If you read your Bible closely, getting baptized, I mean, it's uh, an ordinance of, of the Bible. It's something that we should do because Jesus told us to do it. It's not salvation. It's a picture of salvation for us. Um, grandma said, you know, y'all listen close. Grandma said, uh, if you're a devil before you get baptized, when you come up out of the water, you're still a devil. You're just a wet devil. Right. Thank you for laughing. All right. That's not in my notes. I just told that off the top of my head. Um. You were once dead in trespasses and sins. There's no hope for a dead man unless he's miraculously raised to life. This is what Jesus, this is Jesus' point. In the same way, apart from God's saving grace, sinful man is not able to believe. We need God's help even to recognize that he's God and to draw us to himself. We need his help. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this. This is a great memory verse. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God and not, of, not the result of works so that no one may boast. That, that verse nine is very important. It's saying if we if we all could, we would boast about those things that we do. We say, hey, I got to God because I worked hard. I mean, we're going to boast about it. No, Jesus says, no, back up. Look at look at here. Salvation comes by grace through faith. And that really are the, the, the two steps, the next two steps in the theology of salvation. Firstly, salvation comes by grace. What's, what's grace? It's God giving you what you don't deserve. What are, I mean, what are the things that you don't deserve? The storyline of the Bible is that God is holy. And ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, doing what God said not to do, that sin has been in the world, primarily because it's, it's in us. The, the doctrine of original sin says that everyone born of woman is born with with sin, that we're totally depraved, not utterly depraved. We're not necessarily evil. We're we're totally depraved in that there's nothing good in us that would merit God's favor. And so what does God do? He graces us. He graces us by sending Jesus from an eternity in heaven to to walk on the earth as a man. And Jesus does all those things that we can't do, even though we we should. And, and I mean, we just can't. Jesus does them for us. And then 
The unthinkable happens. He dies on a cross. Why? Because the penalty for our waywardness, our sin is, is death. Jesus takes that death upon himself. And the Bible describes that as God's grace toward you. It's God giving you what you absolutely don't deserve. Now, here's here's the complicated thing. We become members of God's flock. We become his sheep, not because we believe, but because because God makes us a part of his sheep. And then he gives us faith and repentance to help us come to him. If if you if you think of it this way, I'm God is gracing me to uh, with salvation and all I got to do is believe. I've said to you several times, belief is not enough because uh, some of us would think all I got to do is believe and God's going to love me and usher me into his heaven. We still work for that. And so here's the here's the real grace of God. God gifts you repentance and faith. He just wakes you up. Uh, John 3, 3 calls that uh, regeneration. It's being born again. So before you've ever thought a thought about God, the Holy Spirit comes to you unbeknownst to most of you. And he he turns you on, turns you on to the things of God so that you are aware that God even exists. And then there's some physical physical things that happen. You grew up in a Christian home. Your, your, your parents do devotions with you. They share the gospel. You go to church to hear the pastor talk. You read a track. Something tragic happens in your life that the Holy Spirit uses to, to draw you to himself. Then you hear the gospel in a way, the good news of Jesus dying on the cross for you in your place for your sin. And you receive that good news for yourself. And that's salvation. Here's the third part. Salvation comes by faith. That's you receiving the gift that God has given you. If you don't, if you just believe it and it's hanging out there, that's not bad, but it's not all that you need to do to receive all that God has given you. You actually have to, to take an action step. And one theologian expressed it like this, and this is the essence of, of, of verse 27. Firstly, he says, it's faith of the hands. It's taking your hands out like this and says, Jesus, I receive your free gift that you've given me. Firstly, uh, regeneration. You've turned me on to, to know who you are without me even knowing who you are. And then you've brought all these things uh, my way so that I would I would learn about you and have the opportunity to receive you. We don't reject uh, faith of the hands is we don't reject or resent that we can't earn our way to heaven in our own way. We're grateful to accept what God offers in Jesus. The second is the faith of the ears. True sheep hear Jesus voice is what he says in verse 27. And they believe. Um. Jesus point here is that there are some sheep who never hear his voice. Why is that? Because they were never intended to be a part of Jesus, his his sheep pen. The third uh, the third step is faith of the foot. And verse 27 says they follow me. And and here's the thing. This is where our claim to faith is tested. If we say we believe in him, then there's an action step to take. And that belief should lead to following Jesus. Uh, I think it's in first John, the same gospel writer. John says, uh, if you love Jesus, you'll actually obey his commandments. If, if you're not obeying, then that's a sign that you, you're genuinely not loving him. And so here's my question for you. Are you striving to copy Jesus example? Is your character being conformed to his in humility, love and holiness? If so, that, there's a sign that you actually have taken an action step such that John is saying here in, in verse 27. Who are Jesus sheep? They hear his voice. He knows them. And as a result, they're following Jesus. What's the other result? We hear it. In, uh, we see it in verse 28. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. All right. We talked about this last week. Uh, he's saying, here's 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 the true gift of salvation. It's, it's life. I mean, life, abundant life, which is not just for the moment life, but a life that that keeps on going and and gives you more than you than you can give yourself. No cheap imitation, no short term existence. And then it's over. It's never ending life. The word here calls it eternal life. 
This means that Jesus is promising us um, that his sheep will never perish. Though your physical body might decay and, I mean, you lie in the coffin or go down in the, in the I mean, you become worm dirt. I mean, isn't that a graphic depiction of what happens to our bodies after we die? We become worm dirt. Here's, here's the picture that Jesus has given us. That doesn't matter. Why? Because he is allowing us to, to endure, to endure through all time. And here's, here's the real reason why. It says because Jesus is holding, holding our hand. Here's a picture. All right, so last night, Zoe and I snuck in with the students to go to the, uh, the Tim Hawkins concert. It was superb. It was, it was actually awesome. I laughed. I, mean, I almost peed on myself. I laughed so hard. Um, and so there's a 12-minute intermission, and there was like 4,000 people there. A lot of people. And uh, uh, we didn't have to pee, but we had to go get some water because we were thirsty. And so walking through this crowd and, you know, I'm a I'm a protective parent. So I was I was I was interested to make sure I, my my daughter did not get lost in that crowd. OK. And so I had I reached for Zoe, had her grab my hand. The truth is, Zoe was holding my hand as much as I was holding her hand. Right. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying my sheep won't perish because I'm holding their hand. And so walking through that crowd, I'm like a protective parent and I'm not going to leave it to Zoe to hold my hand and something happen. I'm going to squeeze that little girl's hand and we're going to get through this thick crowd to make sure that we're both on the other side together. That's that's the picture that Jesus is giving us. He's holding our hand. It's not it's not dependent upon our faith. It's dependent upon his faith. Jesus is God us and there's nothing that's going to snatch us out of his out of his hand. That word snatch is is a word that he's used before. He used it actually in verse 12. Here's what he says in verse 12. He who's a hired hand, not a sh- not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and, and scatters them. And so Jesus is saying no one is going to no one is going to steal us away from him. Definitely not the big bad wolf. No, even though he might huff and puff. And that those are comforting words. Here's another theology point. Um, this is the, the the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. You've heard it uh, called once saved, always saved. It's like, well, I thought I thought the Baptists believed that. Yeah, but it's scripture. It's right here in scripture. Here's technically what it means. Those who truly belong to Jesus possess eternal life, but also have the blessing of knowing they can never lose it. Well, say what a person like they went to church and they act like they following Jesus and they just walked away. Um, well, I would tell you, it doesn't mean they're not a Christian. Perhaps perhaps something is going on in their life that they're going through a rough spot. I would tell you if they're truly a Christian, if they're truly a sheep following Jesus, Jesus has them by the hand. And even through that rough spot, he's going to get them through and they'll come through on the other end. If not, they were not truly following him. They were not a they were not part of Jesus sheep pen. That's what he says. I like the words no one. These are significant words for us. No one means that nobody and nothing can cause Jesus to lose hold of us. Not death. You know, some of us are scared of death. I'm scared of death. So sometimes I think about it it's like, yeah, I'm ready for it. Come on. because This has been a tough week. But then every once in a while I was like, oh, I'm young. I'm not ready for death yet. My kids still got to grow up and go to college. I want to see that. I want to see grandkids, all that stuff. But here's the thing. Death can't snatch us out of Jesus hands. Why? Because because God is the maker and the giver of life. He's the one that holds our life in his hands. And we're not going to we're not going to kick the bucket until he's ready for us to. No one means that not even sin. Why? Because God defeated sin on the cross. That's what Jesus did. He defeated your sin on the cross. Colossians uh, Colossians chapter three says it says it like this. These beautiful words. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He nailed our sins to the cross. Such that there he's forgiven us of them because Jesus bore them for you. No earthly powers. That means no king, no president, no ambassador. If you're military, there's no general, no, no, uh, for, for you Navy people, no admiral, because I know you get mad at me if I call it a Navy general, Tim. 
For those of you in the corporate corporate world, captains of industry, none of those people can snatch you out of the hand of your father. Why is that? Because God rules over them, not spiritual powers. That means Satan and his minions. They can't snatch you out of God's hands because they can only go as far as God allows them to. And here's the thing. All of these are enemies to us. But I think the no, the not one, the no one mostly applies even to ourselves. You know why? Because we're just foolish people. Sometimes we're rebellious. Sometimes we just sin because we want to. We're, we're sometimes our own worst enemy, and we take ourselves out of God's hands selectively just because, because we want to. And this text tells us not even us in our you know, pathetic sheepness can snatch ourselves out of God's hands. This is how Paul puts all this in Romans 8, 38. I didn't make all this up. This comes from scripture. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor present things, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. This says to me, there's no safer place to be than in the hands of God the Father. He's holding you. All right, so that's the first point. The second point is this, and we're, this is going to be quick. Jesus and the Father are one. Verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Again means this is the third time they picked up stones to stone Jesus. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself to be God. And so there's one thing I want to point out here and then a couple of points. Um, Jesus promised the same thing in verse 28, and then he repeats it in verse 29, only with a twist. In verse 28, he says this. He says, um, no one will snatch. No one is able to snatch my sheep out of my hand. And then verse 29, he, he changes the words a little bit. He says, no one is able to snatch my sheep out of my father's hands. And so, I mean, which one is it? Are we, are we in Jesus' hands? Are we in the father's hands? Are they on that tug of war for us and they're pulling us back both and forth ways? And I, w- I would say simply, I mean, neither nor. I mean, it's both. And, I mean, again, another comforting point for us. Jesus and the Father both have us in their grasp such that we, I mean, even if we let go, they got us. They, they got us even in our falling away. And here's why Jesus says that. He says, because the Father and I are one. The Father and I are one. Verse 30. Now, here's what happens in the rest of this. It's just drama. Okay. The rest of chapter 10 ends in a lot of drama. Um, ultimately, in the end, as you look at the, the last two verses, I'm not going to sh- uh, show you those on the screen or, or even read them. Um, it ends in the division of the people. Some who believe Jesus as he's portrayed himself to be based upon his works, but also his words. And some who I mean, just they just can't handle it. For some reason, they just can't fathom that Jesus is who he says he is, nor can they see all the works that he's been doing. As plain as it might be, they just simply say this man is making himself out to be God and pure and simple. That's just blasphemy. Well, here's what Jesus meant um, when he says this phrase. I and the father are one. He wasn't blaspheming, but he was declaring a few things. Firstly, he's declaring that he and the father have a united will. And that simply means they got the same goal. Here's the goal that God and, and God, the father and God, the son have in the Old Testament. It was it was stated like this that I would be their God and that they would, they would be my people. And, and this is how it's played out over in time. God erected a, a tabernacle, a tent in, in the midst of his people, and then he allowed them to build a temple, and he, um, all kind of symbology inside of it. But basically, his presence dwelt with his people. And then fast forward a couple thousand years, um, New Testament time, God tabernacled amongst his people in the person of Jesus. And then Jesus went down on the cross, rose from the grave. He sent the Holy Spirit. He breathed it into the life of his disciples. And today when we come to faith, he gives us his Holy Spirit such that God is dwelling with us. 
And so my point is, is this, what is God trying to do on the earth? The same thing that he did in the very beginning. He's, he, he has already created heaven on earth. Heaven on earth was the Garden of Eden. I know that's, the, I'm sort of giving an abstract point. God has always meant to be God over his people in his place, ruling over them. He does that with the tent and the tabernacle. He does that with Jesus. In, in the New Testament, he, he, also, uh, he brings in this concept. Um, I'm ushering in the kingdom of God. And that really is what, what God's will is. And Jesus and God the Father have a united will in that effect, that they would be God on the earth in his place amongst his people. The second point that uh, I think is important to, to notice here is that the Father and Jesus are united in their works. We see that in verse 36. I'm trying to see verse 36. Do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. Now, this is a sort of a convoluted verse. I'm going to back up to verse 35. It's not on the screen. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. What he's basically saying is there's there's. In the law, it's, it calls some, you know, ordinary men, little g gods, as in they are uh, God's ordained authority over men. And God didn't call that blasphemy. And so Jesus says, look at me. I'm the man that God has consecrated and sent into the world to, to, to lord over you. And because I say that I'm the son of man, you're going to say that I'm blaspheming. He continues in, in verse 37 and 38. If I am not doing the works of the Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Later on in John 10, he'll say, the Father who dwells in me does his works. Simple point. Whenever we see Jesus working, God the Father is behind it. God is involved in everything that Jesus is doing even the point of dying on the cross in our place for our sin. The Father and Jesus are one in, in, in their will. They are one in their works. Lastly, we learn in verse 38 that Jesus and the Father are united in their access. Let me read verse 38 again. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The theological term, more theology, is circumincession. Sounds like incest, doesn't it? Um, here's, the, here's an easier way to say that. Mutual indwelling. Here's what Scripture unveils for us in this complicated doctrine of a, a Trinitarian God, that God dwells in Jesus, Jesus dwells in God, and the Holy Spirit dwells in both of them. One God, one divine being, three persons. That's how the Trinity exists. And that's what he's saying. Here are the implications of, of this, specifically implications of Jesus and the Father being one. I think that's a, the significant point of our text today. The first thing is we know who God is because Jesus is one with God. Jesus is really revealing who God is to us and all that he does and says. John's purpose in his gospel has been to prove that Jesus is God. That's what he says in John 20, verse 31. I've written all this stuff that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and then having believed, you'll have life in his name. In John chapter 14, verse 9, we'll get to this in several weeks. Jesus will say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so one scholar says it like this. Jesus shows us God in act and in life. And all that he does in the words that he says, in the life that he lives on earth, Jesus was doing one thing. He was showing us what God looks like. That means if you want to know who God is, we can see him revealed in the person and the work of Jesus as recorded in the Bible. The second thing is, if Jesus is God, since Jesus is God, believers can be sure that our sins are forgiven through his death on the cross. I won't go into it, but this is the doctrine of the atonement, that an animal is sacrificed a perfect animal is sacrificed. His blood is spewed to appease the wrath of God for our sin. And so in the New Testament, Jesus is the one accomplishing that atonement for us. His blood is being shed. 
blood that's of infinite value to pay the penalty for our sin. And then thirdly, if Jesus is God, we can completely rely on his promises. Here's the truth. If Jesus wasn't God, then he was telling a huge lie. Because if he wasn't God, he wouldn't be able to fulfill all the promises that he gives us in the in the totality of Scripture, but particularly in in John chapter 10, that he's a shepherd able to to lead, feed, guard and protect sheep and that he'll lead them ultimately to eternal life. Let me put this all together. Let me put these two thoughts together. The reason there's a division between people of the world, those who Jesus calls my sheep and those who aren't his sheep, is because there's a division between those who belong to God and who don't belong to God. The reason Jesus is able to call people my sheep is because Jesus is God himself. He and the Father are one. The way that you respond to Jesus' word is the way you respond to God the Father. And the way you respond to the Father is the determining factor on which side of the division you lie on. And so here's the question for us today. Which side of the division do you, do you lie on? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would not return void, that you would work in the hearts of your people to reveal who you are, a God that shepherds us, that shepherds his sheep, that as we hear your voice, you know us, and you give us the opportunity to respond by following you. God, I pray that you give your people faith, faith without doubting that you are who you say you are. Jesus, you are God, the Son of God, who's come to earth to to save us. More than that, Lord God, we pray today that uh, you give us faith uh, to to follow you, to take the action step to, to receive you with our hands, Uh, that our ears would would hear your voice, and that our feet would simply follow. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.